Right, right. Should we start? Because I need to get you <laughs> this home. This is going to get silly, I think. I hope not. Uh, this, is a, this is a serious topic for serious men. Is it a fun one? Uh, it depends on your definition. Is it really involved? There... I kind of want, like... No, I knew I knew what you'd be like, so we're following it from the point of view of one person, and I've really dumbed down. <laughs> <laughs> is it dumb? The amount of characters. All right, okay. If I'd have done it... Is it, it easier pro- to follow than one of Evie's episodes? No. Oh, but you are significantly older. No, but I'm not that And you have a degree. <laughs> Barely. It's a degree. Yeah. Don't do yourself down. You earned that. You put yourself in crippling debt for that. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. That took all the air out of the room. Yeah, didn't it? Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Stuart era. Though we cannot be exactly sure what year, or exactly where. So it's 1700s? Well, it's late 1600s, but yes. I'll take that. Mm. It's the 17th century. We can't be sure exactly what year or exactly where, and this is because William Patterson, the hero of our story, was not born into the upper classes. So who really gives a shit? When he was born. From the point of view of the the uh, authorities, he's just another relatively poor person. We just think how expensive ink and, mm. and I don't know if it, what kind of filing system they had. You just staple on a bit more parchment to the scroll. There probably is somewhere in um, a church record, uh, a record of his baptism. But because we don't know exactly where he was born, we don't know which church to look in. So... <laughs> there probably is a record. It's just no one's really been bothered to check. Someone will note right in. Mm. It is most likely to help those people who may want to go on the search for his um, baptism record that he was born in or around the village of Tinwald in Dumfries and Galloway in southwest Scotland. Yeah, you can see it from the lakes. Yeah, yeah. You're looking across uh, that that strip of water. That strip of water, and it's that bit. Yeah. We think he was born somewhere around the year 1655 which was during that brief but glorious time when Britain was a republic. So he was actually born in a republic. One of the few people who can claim to be born in Britain and born in a republic. When did that happen? Uh, That was um, for 10 years. So So no monarchy for 10 years? Yeah, yeah, when Oliver Cromwell was in power. It is recorded that his father was a farmer. However, it is unlikely that he was a dirt-poor crofter like the vast majority of Scots working the land at the time were. We can make this assumption because he made enough money to ensure that young William received a good education in all the most important subjects. Philosophy, history. Economics. Well, actually, <laughs> mathematics and engineering. So he did get some useful skills there. Throwing big bits of tree. Mm. Oh, yeah. They did a lot of tossing the caber. Did they? Yeah. that was Their school, their school sports day was so much more dangerous than they are today. <laughs> all these boys with big sticks. Yeah. And that one where you're throwing it like a hammer, only instead of it being a chain, it's just a, a metal shaft with a massive... What? There's a hammer throw in the Highland Games, but rather than it being on a chain that you swing around... It's an it's, actual it's, hammer. It's a massive... St- yeah, it's got a rounded end, but it is essentially just a massive metal shaft that you wheat round and throw. Oh, cool. It's really manly and dangerous. With his top-notch schooling, William moved south to England, specifically Bristol at the age of 17, to stay with an aunt. That's quite a distance. Mm. 
but uh, the prospects for the son of a farmer in Dumfries and Galloway apparently were, you can take over the farm when your dad dies. So he thought, do you know what? I think I could do a little bit better than that. Doesn't that sound great now, though? What, just being able to take over a small holding farm where you're making enough money to... If dad was like, oh, you didn't know we had a farm? Yeah. No, no, you never talked about it. Yeah, I'm there every day. Mm. It's only you a couple can, of dozen acres. It, you can have it after I die. It's enough. Yeah, I'll be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's hoping when that will comes yeah. around, eh? Secret farm, secret farm, secret farm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so at the age of 17, he moved south to Bristol. Oh, no, I inherited debt. <laughs> Daddy! <laughs> at the time, Bristol was the second largest city in England and the main port for the trade with the Caribbean and the Americas. Yes. This naturally meant that it was a melting pot of salty sea dogs looking to drink away their hard-earned pay and swap stories of buccaneering and daring do. You do live in a fairy tale, don't you? This is what these people lived. Right. They literally, these were people who would flip between being privateers and pirates, depending on who we were at war with, because they weren't going to stop raiding boats. It's just sometimes it was legal and sometimes it wasn't quite so legal. Sometimes they were allowed to, you know, stop in Brit- in British ports and they'd be, ah, oh, fine. And other times it's like, mm, yeah, best, best stay away just until we're at war with Spain again. And then I'll be able to, to jump back in. But there would have been plenty of people who would have stories of famous pirates that they'd sailed with, either real or imagined. Obviously, I'm sure there were quite a few bullshit artists in the uh, pubs of Bristol at the time. That's all I'd do. I'd just lie. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't actually want to go to sea. That sounds dangerous. In a world where nothing can be proved, (laughs) the liar is king. I imagine you'd be like, yes, I sail with Black Bart the very first time you tried it. And then just a looming shadow over you. I don't remember you. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as it would with many an impressionable teenager, it seems that the wild tales of exotic islands, they struck a chord with young William Patterson. So when his aunt died in 1674 and left him her house, that's not a bad inheritance, he didn't hesitate to sell the property and buy himself a passage on a ship to the Caribbean to try his hand at a life of adventure. Nice. Because, you know, you're 19 and you've had all these people telling you, oh, it's amazing. The women. Oh, the adventure, the excitement. I'm just imagining you on a plane to Australia now. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what happened, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It, was, it was not that exciting. Not for me, anyway. But then I was terrible with money. I had to come home quite, <laughs> quite promptly. <laughs> Now, no one is sure what William Patterson spent the next eight years doing around the West Indies. Some speculate that he became a buccaneer himself, rubbing shoulders with famous pirates of the time like Henry Morgan, Henry Every and Bartholomew Sharp. Just rubbing shoulders. Yeah, that's all he did. He just just... spotted them in a crowd and just rubbed past them like... (laughs) (sighs) And looked over his shoulder. (laughs) So fancy. I love you. Um... Others believe that he set himself up as a merchant, trading supplies and building a reputation amongst the locals for honest dealing and integrity. Because, let's face it, if there was one thing you needed as a pirate in the Caribbean, it was a trader you could trust. Someone who'd maybe fence the things that you stole without asking too many questions. Either way, at some point during his time in the Caribbean, we know he was told 
about a place called Darien, which is an area in modern-day Panama. This was, according to the stories, an as-yet unclaimed isthmus. <laughs> isthmus. Yeah. Um, a narrow strip of land between two seas that connects two larger pieces of land. So, a thin bit of land. Is he, an isthmus. Did he build the Pan- Panama Canal? Well, the Panama Canal is on an isthmus slightly north of Darien, but the, the right. idea is the same. You know, well, let's connect the two seas via this small patch of land rather than having to go all the way, the long way under. around. Because Patterson, he had the same sort of thought. This is before the Panama Canal, obviously. He was convinced it would be the perfect place to set up a trading colony. At its narrowest, Darien was only just over 30 miles wide. Maybe Darien. What do you reckon? I reckon you should have looked into this before yeah. we start recording. I've, it's one of those things. I've read all these books and I've always just read it. I've never actually said it out loud to this point. <laughs> We're going to go with Kind Darien. of like the word isthmus. Isthmus, yeah. You seem to have surprised yourself with that. Isthmus. Yeah. Isthmus. I-S-T-H-M-U-S. Isthmus. Isthmus. Doesn't sound right, does it? No, isthmus. I'm going to go with isthmus. At its narrowest, Darien was only just over 30 miles wide and Patterson believed that it would be relatively easy to create an overland road between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans at this point. This would reduce journey times for merchants transporting goods by weeks as you wouldn't need to navigate around the entirety of South America and would also remove the need to sail around Cape Horn which was infamous for rough seas that could easily wreck ships. Yeah. So it's it's like why has no one thought of this before? I am a genius. Someone's already done it. Oh, no, no, no. No, it's him. It, it's it's unclaimed. Oh, Christ. Well, I mean, it's it's not unclaimed. The Spanish have claimed it, but it's unsettled. Right. Okay. Which is the same as unclaimed in, in Patterson's head. Are there are n- no native people to that. Oh, part? there are plenty of indigenous peoples there. Yeah. Oh, they're gone. No, no, they're still there. Just they're displaced. Just... No, they're, they're, they're living there. Like I say, the Spanish have claimed the territory. They've just not done anything with it. Oh, right. So, <laughs> it's like, you're now controlled by Spain, like, do we so have to do, do anything? On a to... map, it's like, we own all of this. Yeah, but we've only actually colonised this bit. But we own the rest. Patterson argued that it made sense that any enterprising company who were willing to incur the initial costs to build the road would then be able to charge a significant fee for the use of the safer overland route, quickly turning their minimal investment into massive and enduring profits. So he's like, there's a start-up cost, yes, but think about it. As soon as that road's built, license to print money. And that's going to be yours forever. In perpetuity, you're, you will leave one hell of an inheritance to your children. A small farm in Scotland? Pah! How about the most important trading route potentially in the world? That's what he wants to leave. Even better, as he would often assure potential investors, the soil in Darien was so rich that you could grow practically any crop you wanted with minimal effort. If you just spat some seeds on the floor, within days, you would have luscious vegetation there. And you're at the equator. Yeah. So it's like consistent sunlight. Yep. Oh, perfect. It's hot, it's humid. There's everything you'd need. And as a final sweetener to his scheme, Patterson claimed that the indigenous people in the area were known, were famous for being very welcoming and helpful to any white person who came to shore. Literally begging to have Europeans come and settle the area. 
You so told him this. Yeah, this. These are the stories he picked up while he was in the Caribbean. It's known. Yeah, it's known. Right. So it's like we honestly we sailed past and they were there with a big sign saying "free land," just waving it at us while the women danced suggestively. Oh, he's going to get into some shit. I'm so excited. With this well-rehearsed sales pitch, Patterson returned to Europe and tried to convince investors in the Netherlands to provide funding. Then he tried the German city-states. But despite his promise of untold wealth, he struggled to find anyone who actually wanted to invest in his scheme. Do you know how many pitches they get like that every day? Yeah, I imagine. (laughs) It's that, it's just that. Oh, mate, mate, you can't pass this one up. You can't pass this one up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they listened to him. And he hadn't been there yet. No, I think I think that would probably have been the bit that I'd have been like. And so, so you've been there. Well, no, no, but I know a fellow who says that they have. I've rubbed shoulders. Let me tell you <laughs> who I have rubbed up against. Oh, you'll be impressed. The size of these shoulders, <laughs> the utter strength of these shoulders. Now, it may have in part been down to his personality. The reason that people didn't want to invest. He was described as being deadly serious and principled to a fault at all times. A teetotaler who would not accept any bribery or corrupt business practices, upon which almost all business was conducted at the time. Oh. And he's, got, he's he's delivering it with that enthusiasm. Mm. You know, when he just stares at you unblinkingly. <laughs> it will work. It will it w- work. It will work. But as soon as people are like, oh, and I suppose we could, you know, skim a bit off. He's like, no, 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 no. No. It's all going to be done by the book. And we're going to fill in all the forms. And we're going to wait for all of the committees to make their report. But once it's done, maybe in five to ten years. Money. Money, yeah. (laughs) He tries to soften it at the end. Money's for all of us. Secondly, though, and I think you've alluded to it, He'd never actually visited the Isthmus himself. His vision of the perfect place to settle a trading colony was based purely on the hearsay of buccaneers who he'd met is he a, in a pub. A, a, a stereotypical Scotsman. So is he this fair-skinned, fairly strong but and ginger character? I don't... He doesn't come across... I'm just imagining this, this Scotsman arriving in... what's. Is going to turn out to be the heart of darkness. Imagine, imagine it more like a Presbyterian minister. He's someone who's quite gaunt, uh, sort of very pale, angular features, very dour. He owns several sun hats. He owns no sun hats. Oh, sun hats are uh, an extravagance that he mistake made. one <laughs> of many. <laughs> I hope that I hope this is just a series of mistakes. Oh, oh dear. I think the problem is he is very principled and he assumes that everybody else he meets is you know gonna be honest gonna be open and is gonna work for the common good and that's a mistake he should know this from rubbing shoulders with all these buccaneers well i wonder if because he was this naive honest innocent person that's why it it worked when everyone else is a crook and you have this one honest person it's almost like well we've got to protect him because he's the only person that we know it's will be a, yeah will be a fair dealer. So what was a, a he strength... brokers between other people yeah 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 between crooks. But you you can always use him as a middleman because you know he's going to be scrupulously fair and really honest. So in the Caribbean he was taught this is your strength, and then he comes back 
to the world of sort of legalities and British business. And it's like, hmm, yes, <laughs> you're honest, are you? <laughs> Let's see how that works out for you. Right. <clears throat> Eventually, after he'd been rejected many, many times on the European continent, I can't stress enough how many people said no to William Patterson when he presented this idea for his colony. He returned to Britain. He was frustrated and he decided, you know what, just for the moment, I'm going to park that idea. Maybe it's the right idea. Just I'm a visionary. It's too early. Uh, And he instead set himself up in London as a banker and a financier. He ended up making quite a bit of money when he helped to set up the Hampstead Waterworks Company in 1692. Then he reinvested the money with a property developer called Sir Theodore Janssen, who wanted to gentrify a little-known village near London called Kensington. Okay. Which, you've heard of Kensington. Yeah. So this guy helped to gentrify Kensington, which then became one of the most desirable places in all of London. It again proved to be a wise investment, and soon Patterson had enhanced his reputation to the point that he was being consulted by the House of Commons regarding the reform of the ancient and creaking finance system in 1693. Now, working alongside such lumen... <clears throat> Sorry, you're moving. It's... My leg's gone numb. That's OK. That's why I gave you the cushion. I miss the rocking chair. I know you do. Now... Have you seen where the cushion is? Why is it there? <laughs> it's for your bum. Our mattress doesn't quite fit our bed. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a small pillow width gap at the head of the bed every morning i wake up without a pillow (laughs) (laughs) it just sneaks its way down that's that's how you know it's time to get up the pillow is fully retracted back into the bed and all the cushioning's gone out of the mattress so now just i get woken up by springs every morning that sounds dickensian so we got a new mattress joe yeah put it on the bed yeah it's the hottest thing. It's as though there is a fire just burning away within the thing. It's stuffed with lamb's wool. It's a very fancy, heavy mattress. Mm. Two nights we spent on it, I had to take it downstairs and put the old mattress back on. And I'm losing my pillow again. Oh. I know. What a sad, sad state of affairs <laughs> that is. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. William Patterson. Yes. <clears throat> Working alongside other titans of the era, including Sir Isaac Newton, Patterson proposed a scheme to allow for the government to fund essential infrastructure via credit, which would be based upon Parliament guaranteeing the security of the money. This was one of the key ideas that led to the formation of the Bank of England the very next year. And as a reward for his hard work, Patterson was made one of the first directors of the bank. So he helped to found the Bank of England. So he's achieving all these things, but I hope we're going to return. <clears throat> well, he's achieving loads of things, but as far as he's concerned, these are all side quests. <laughs> the main one is Panama. Yeah. Setting up the Bank of England was just something to amuse him while he was coming up with a different pitch idea for his, his great, I want to build a colony. He's just building his confidence. I'm, I mean, this will make me pretty yeah, damn confident. Yeah. I can achieve anything. Yeah. Oh, he's going to... But... I'm so excited. Even though he'd set up the Bank of England, he'd had some of the most important ideas and he'd done most of the important legwork to get it running. His unshakable moral code rubbed the other directors up the wrong way. They described him as 
humorless, tiresome, and depressingly serious in all things. Like, even when we're leaving work and going for drinks, he comes with us and just has stale water. <laughs> He's always there. Yeah, just in the corner. Just watching us drink and tutting. He's having a great time, though. Oh, he's loving it. Yeah, he's out with his friends, (laughs) he thinks. (laughs) As he drinks his water. (laughs) Uh, But eventually, the the differences between him and the happy-go-lucky investors drinking wine, they they became too much, and he resigned from the Bank of England in disgust just one year after being given the directorship. Which is, I mean, sticking to your principles, that's like a cushy job for life, and after a year, it's just like... But they drink every night. And I've seen them carousing with women. No, I will not have this. I'd rather be penniless on the streets <laughs> than have to spend time with these directors of the Bank of England. I'd rather die in a jungle <laughs> from mosquito bites. Uh, he had managed to amass enough money to live comfortably. Probably for the rest of his life if he wanted to. But now that he didn't have bank duties to be getting on with, Patterson found himself with too much free time. So he decided that it was right for him to return to the idea of the colony over in South America. How old is he now? Uh, he would be Please in be his early old. 40s at this point. Okay, that's old enough. And it must have felt to William Patterson that fortune was favouring him. As literally a week after he came to this decision, King William granted permission for the subjects of Scotland to set up colonies just like his English subjects had been able to do for over a hundred years. Fantastic, yeah, it's his time. It's the perfect timing. Prior to this time, only English ships, or those where the master and three quarters of the crew were English, had been allowed to import goods from the king's possessions in Africa, Asia and America, with no imports at all being allowed in ships that were not either English or from the country of origin. You still have to pay tax on everything you bring in. Yes, but... Even so, only Briti- only English ships could do the trade. So it's to protect the English shipping industry. They're like, well, you, no no third party can set up um, a trade route as a merchant, just funneling things between. If you're taking stuff from our possessions, you better either be from the country that the things are coming from or from England. Right. This has resulted in Scotland having barely any international trade, aside from grain exports, leaving the country financially inferior to and overly dependent on England in the South. Right. Because that's the way we like it. The ability to create their own mercantile company to rival the East India Company gave many Scots a reason to hope that their country could become an equal of England once again. This is our time, this is our chance. And hope at this time was something that the Scottish people desperately needed. Because in 1695, it looked as though the grain harvest was going to fail. Again. And due to the reliance of the national economy on grain exports, the country held back minimal reserves against poor harvests, meaning that even one bad year could lead to widespread famine. They're just selling the whole field every year. Yeah, they're they're keeping... It's like, we are allowed to keep this tiny thing for ourselves. Everything else has to be sold. This is enough energy to provide... (laughs) This is barely enough that we can replant the field next year. The harvest did fail in 1695. And 1696. It got a bit better in 1697, but then it failed again in 1698. And 1699. The period became known as the Seven Ill Years, and it is estimated that up to 15% of the population of Scotland starved to death. Shit. Hmm. 
with tens of thousands more choosing to either emigrate to England or the Americas in order to escape what was a seemingly never-ending famine. So it wasn't a good time to be entirely dependent on grain exports. That's the other end of owning a farm. Yeah. If if you have a bad year, you better tighten your belt, son. Well, not anymore, because you just get subsidised. No, not anymore. Was that stopped? Well, the EU subsidies have, because we're not part of that anymore. And they've not been fully replaced, as far as I understand it, by our system. That's why milk costs so much. It is why milk costs so much. And eggs! I can't find eggs! What's going on with eggs? (laughs) Have we just got bunged up chickens, or what? (laughs) (laughs) To the merchants of Edinburgh and Glasgow... <laughs> when you edit that, could you just leave the silence? <laughs> the, the, the awkward <laughs> pregnant pause, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> or extend it <laughs> forever. You know where people are looking at the, the phones like, this is end. It's at the end of the episode. <laughs> to the merchants of Edinburgh and Glasgow, Patterson's Darien scheme sounded like the perfect way of supercharging a new company that could bring wealth and prosperity back to Scotland. And they encouraged him to write a detailed proposal for the Company of Scotland. Trading to Africa and the Indies. Has he moved back to Dumfries and Galloway now? Uh, no, he's still in London. Right. Um, but he is... He's got connections. He's got connections yeah. up in Edinburgh and his Scottish connections are saying, well, you keep talking about this scheme that you, you swear would um, you know, make a company a superpower. Go on then, write the proposal. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, scrub daddy. Yeah. <laughs> Patterson wrote the proposal. Not bothering to mention at any point that he had no first-hand knowledge of the area he was championing as the solution to all of Scotland's problems. So he left that out completely. Yeah, because everybody laughed at him when he told yeah, yeah. he'd, 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 he'd never been. Yeah. So he was just saying, rather than saying, I have heard that this land is, he's just going with the definite article. He's, this land is beautiful. This land is easy to live in. This land has a welcoming population. This land has never experienced a storm. And because he's been so honest his whole All the way life. Through, everyone's just and like n- yes. And now he's not being honest, it's gonna hurt him. William Patterson he'll, he'll has be finally punished. Learned, not to, not to lie, but to, a lie of a mission. Yeah. Yeah. Admit the truth. Oh, Jerry <clears throat> still got tea. Mm. <laughs> the proposal received royal assent early in sixteen ninety five. However, it is one thing being allowed to create a mercantile company it was quite another to actually do it. The first thing the company needed was starting capital in order to buy and outfit the ships that they would need and to cover the wages of the sailors that would be transporting settlers across the Atlantic. At first, the Company of Scotland had backers in London as well as in Scotland, with William Patterson spending his time in London trying to support the collection of subscriptions worth up to £600,000, which was considered to be enough to cover the initial expedition and setting up of the trading port. And within a few weeks, the £300,000 expected from English investors had been pledged by around 200 merchants. So they, they managed to hit their goals. That's amazing. But with so much financial backing, the new Company of Scotland came to the attention of a little business known as the English East India Company. And they decided that they didn't want to risk having any competition for their monopoly on foreign trade. On the 11th of November, the East India Company directors voted that no investor in their company could invest in or be associated with the Company of Scotland without being considered to have broken their oath and losing their entire stake. So basically, like, you can't hedge your bets by 
investing with those guys as well because if you do we're just going to forfeit all the money you've got tied up in us and we're already making money so what are you going to do are you going to risk it all for something that might work or are you going to stick with us you know we work come on you know it makes sense so now we're going to have a skeleton crew (laughs) well we're going to lose quite a few of the investors south of the border belt and braces though the india uh, the east india company they also petitioned the king to say that they felt that the setting up of a rival company was both unfair and possibly illegal. Uh, we're, not, <laughs> we're not quite sure what law they've broken, but we're, we're pretty sure we can find one. Give us some time. Uh, yes, it's, it's illegal. Let's just go with the catch-all. It's illegal because it makes me sad. Just before any monopoly laws. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need a second? We have one company, you know, from these islands. We don't need two. Oh, God. Successive. An inquiry was held in the Houses of Parliament and each of the 200 English investors was called to explain why they had decided to invest in a company that could potentially hurt good English trade, costing the jobs of good English sailors and pushing good English children into poverty. Unsurprisingly, by Christmas, almost all of the investors had withdrawn their support for the Company of Scotland and William Patterson abandoned London to head back home to Scotland and see if there was any way that they could still get the scheme off the ground without any money from the English. Despite the setback south of the border, Patterson was welcomed as a hero in Edinburgh, with people of Scotland seeing him as a visionary who had been betrayed by the English because they could see just how brilliant his strategy was, and they were jealous that they had not thought of it themselves. None of them have met him yet. No, they don't know him personally. Him. Yeah, he is, he is a symbol, and they're, they're looking He's at it. He's a two-minute hero. They've looked at it, and they've gone, look... This is exactly what happens. A Scottish person has a good idea that could work given a chance and the English stamp it out because they're just too jealous of how great we are at innovation and business. And this is the this is the reason we all have to get behind this man. Mm. This, I'm sure, charismatic, tour de force of a man. This man that you'd like to spend your days hanging out with. And then he turned up. Did a little speech. <laughs> I... It would be great if we could the money. It would be very nice investment. Ten percent. You <laughs> fucking <laughs> boring git. <laughs> you prick. Prick, prick, prick. Buoyed by the almost universal national support, the directors of the company believed that they could still manage to get the venture off the ground if they could raise four hundred thousand pounds in Scotland alone. This was 100,000 more than they had initially intended to try and raise in Scotland. And it was a sum that accounted for nearly half of all the available money in Scotland at the time. Jesus Christ. That's half of all the capital available in the country is what they're trying to raise. That's impossible. Is it? Not with the hatred that Scottish, <laughs> Scottish have, have for the English. Yeah. And the feeling that they've been wronged. Yeah. On February the 26th, 1696 the subscription a quarter of scottish people sold their babies (laughs) you'd be surprised (laughs) the subscription book was opened in edinburgh with a promise that absolutely any company or individual could invest as long as they could reach the minimum of 100 pounds by the time the subscription book was closed on the 1st of august there were over 1400 entries but as some were on behalf of entire towns or associations, it was thought that overall tens of thousands of people had at least a small stake in the new company. Right. So an entire town, everyone would chip in and it'd be if the town as a total could reach a hundred pounds and it'd be a pound here, 
it'd be shillings it'd be tiny amounts of money that everyone would pitch in and then the town would be able to send a representative to sign the subscription book and everyone would feel really good about themselves that they were helping to make scotland great again god you imagine the pressure i don't know if it willing to feel any pressure at this point at all i don't know if he's yeah he has a constitution to feel stressed or guilty or anything like that I don't think he feels the pressure because he's so sure this is going to work. He's a robot, so... Yeah. Robots, <laughs> he might be a little bit... Robots robot. don't care. <laughs> he's he's just, well, we have the money now and we can use that and we will make the business and we will do it and we will invest the money wisely and we will then make it will work and we will give everyone the money back plus more. So it's brilliant. He has no worries about this all working out fine. They'd reached their £400,000 target and when the first call for a quarter of the funds to be provided was made no one defaulted nobody Every, had everybody to paid it, yeah. everybody who was asked to pay for that first tranche of money went yep there you go have it let's do this we're all in it together and one hundred thousand pounds was in the company coffers ready to buy the ships needed for the first voyage to the isthmus is he going well at this point he he definitely wants to be on the ship yeah right okay he's he's a hands-on guy he's i like, don't know if he's just gonna sit in edinburgh and just but also you know he's known because he's like 50 now yeah but he's known as the guy who um has history in the caribbean and he knows he the area for years for he's eight mapped years. it yeah yeah for eight years he was trading in that area so they need he's his rubbed shoulders knowledge. with all the locals yeah well he'll go over there and every port they'll stop in he'll have tons of connections people that he wants to talk to people that want what, to talk what's to happened is through the act of lying because mm. he's always so sure of his work because he's always honest but now he's let a little lie slip in it's got to the point where he believes what he said. He th- he's th- in his mind, he knows what it, or he looks like he's been I there. I think as well, he's, like he's I said, drank the water. He doesn't believe he's that discovered anybody new else. Fruits. He doesn't believe that anybody else would lie. So when this person told him about the Darien sort of the Darien Peninsula, the Darien Isthmus, he just took them at the word and went, "Well, why would they lie to me if that's what they're saying it's like?" No, but he's believing their own delusion now. Well, I don't think it was a delusion, that bit. I think he, he honestly believes that he was told this by somebody who said, I'm not lying to you. And he took him at his word and went, oh, good. Well, then I will take this as gospel truth. I think it's it, it's naivety rather than an outright lie, this bit. Now, while trying to get subscriptions in London, Patterson had made a friend in an Englishman called James Smith. And although this was now a purely Scottish undertaking, Patterson managed to convince his fellow directors that he, Smith was a completely different kind of Englishman and that they should absolutely allow him to invest a £3,000 stake to help them get to their total. Patterson also insisted... Different how? What what do you mean? He's trustworthy. You just said he was different. I'm imagining that all Smith had to do was say, yes, but you can trust me. (laughs) And Patterson went, yes, you're right. (laughs) On reflection, I can trust you. You've, You've told me you're trustworthy. And then he went and told everyone that Smith was very trustworthy. Patterson also insisted that Smith was the perfect person to act as their agent in London. His job was to try and discern what goods were currently most needed in Africa and India so that the ships could be loaded with the most profitable cargo possible for their outward journey. So he's an East Indian spy? He is a man who has suddenly been given a hell of a lot of responsibility um, for what was a minimal investment, really, considering... um, and he just popped out of nowhere. He popped out of nowhere, okay. made friends with Patterson, and as a sign of the absolute trust that Patterson placed in his new friend, he agreed to trust Smith 
with £25,000 of the subscription money, which equated to one sixteenth of the entire subscription that had been raised. Or, if you want to think of it this way, one thirty-tooth of the entire financial total of Scotland. He had one thirty-second of all the money that Scotland had. In, like, gold. In, um, I believe it would have been in bonds and stuff. Right. Um, but, yeah, this bloke that Patterson had met in a pub in London had 25 grand given to him. It's like, now you're not going to misuse that money. You're going to use it for what we spoke about. And Smith was like, yeah, you don't even need you know to what? send somebody with I'm me. Go- I'm going to believe in James for now. Okay. I'm going to treat this story as though I was William. Mm-hmm. So James has gone off to London. That's good. He's... To do his work. Yeah. He's got the best interests in mind. Meanwhile, in October 1696, Patterson headed back to the continent with a man called Erskine to try one last time to drum up some further investment. They were in Amsterdam in December, once again failing to convince the Dutch, when one of the directors of the company, called Haldane, arrived to talk to Patterson. (laughs) Haldane had brought a rather sheepish-looking James Smith with him, and explained that almost as soon as James had reached London... He'd embezzled at least £8,000 of the money he'd been trusted with, meaning that there was no. now, there was now a serious hole in the finances uh, and that this could put the entire venture in jeopardy. What a twist. Yeah. Nobody could see that oh, coming. James. That some bloke that a trusting Scotsman met in a pub well, turned out to be taking advantage. It's a lesson learnt for William. He's going to learn from this. Yes. This won't happen three more times. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. Patterson, to be fair, was horrified. And although it was obvious to his fellow directors that he had not known about Smith's plans and had simply been too trusting by far, his own strict moral code insisted that Patterson shoulder all of the blame for the actions of the man he'd vouched for. So he said, this is all on me, guys. I take full blame and responsibility. And I will prove it. Take take three fingers. Here's no, a he's, knife. He's going to work to get the money oh. back. And he couldn't fall on his sword just yet, though. The three directors agreed... He didn't own one. ...that if any word of the scandal got out, then there would be no chance of attracting any further investors. So they carried on to Hamburg, with Smith in tow, pretending that everything was absolutely fine and they were just four good chums working together in concert. And Smith's just crying a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just that, that sniffy... <laughs> sniffly he's, crying he's just got hay fever <laughs> <laughs> he's fine and he will not speak will you Smith <laughs> I'm so sorry in the end it didn't matter much as the English ambassador to Hamburg forbade any of the merchants from subscribing upon his return to Scotland in November Patterson was brought before the rest of the directors of the company to decide what punishment was appropriate many of them were at this point coming to realise that Patterson had now pretty much served his purpose in generating enthusiasm for the new company and that increasingly he was becoming a bit of a liability nobody likes him he's he's so dry the thing is he's not he's not a liability most of the time he's very fastidious he does all of the sort of legwork that other people don't want to do i know but he's a joy he's a joy vacuum oh yeah he's an absolute joy vacuum and they're like we're pretty sure we've got it from here i mean what's there to do we've got to buy a few supplies and then we've just got to sail there we don't really need him because he, trusting as ever, all of his notes, all of his sort of workings out of everything, he'd handed them over to the rest of the directors to peruse and they never gave them back. So he's like, here's the plan of how you could do it all. And I don't need, 
I'm sure you won't try and use this information to oust me. So you hold on to all of those things. Is it a moral code thing with him? Or is it a, a, a thing with his brain? I think he, he just so... trusts. Right. Even though he's been burned. Where would you place him on the spectrum with your, with your insight? I You can't place historical people on the spectrum. I, I think there was a, an idea that he had learned what the rules of society were supposed to be mm-hmm. in an ideal world, and he was determined to follow them. Whether everybody else did or not was their own sort of morality and a decision between them and God. But he, but he can't, sure he, shooting was going to be straight. But he can't read social cues. We know this. It doesn't seem so. I'm, I'm just interested. I'm, there's an argument. I mean, there's an argument that Sir Isaac Newton was um, autistic. And handsome. And, and very handsome. Um William, possibly, it would it would be fu- fun to go back and meet him. Yeah, and and then I'd I'd maybe um, diagnose him. <laughs> I, well, I can't diagnose. I form an opinion <laughs> and gossip. Yeah, <laughs> bitch about him. Like in my that. real job. <laughs> now, so you know, Patterson was becoming a liability. Ironically, it was his single-minded dedication to his scheme, his dream of setting up this colony, that meant that Patterson was not... He's able... going on his own rowboat. He wasn't able to reimburse the money, as he had neglected all other business interests in order to be of service of the new company. So all of the other things that were sort of bringing in passive income, he'd neglected to the point where it had all gone wrong. He he had comfortable income that had just dwindled to nothing because when he should have been making sure that that business was still ticking along, he was focused on this scheme. When he was supposed to be meeting with some business partners about this thing or that thing. No, no, no. He had to be focused on trying to get subscriptions for the Darien scheme. I'm all in. Yeah. yeah. Which meant that he couldn't pay... On a pair of twos. Yeah, he couldn't pay the eight grand that he needed to in order to sort of plug the hole in the finances. Well, he's not even all in on a pair of twos. He's all in on a on a hand he hasn't seen yet. Yeah. He's <laughs> been told, oh, yeah, got pocket aces. <laughs> Oh yeah, pocket aces. Yeah, <laughs> it is, it's, yeah, that's it. It's, like, it's the dealer and now to, to bankrupt a whole country. <laughs> <laughs> he asked that he be allowed to work off the debt as part of his role in the new colony on Darien. So he basically said, "If if you allow me to go there, I will work for oh, free." Is it a subservient? Yeah, role? until until my debt is paid off, I will you know do all of the administration for free until my debt's paid off. Just because I want, I know that I can help make this a success, and I need to be there, or it will all go wrong. He's 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 digging the long drops, isn't he? <laughs> he he would literally do anything at this point, and there will be some digging. Don't you worry. However, the other directors took the decision to throw him off the board, withdraw his company stock, and most heartbreakingly of all, wet willies for Patterson especially, they rejected his request to still be able to go to the colony in service of the company. Patterson was out. It's his dream. It's his, his plan. It's his dream, his plan. But... His heroic return to Scotland. Ah, but now it's about more than just his dream, it's about business. And they're, they're seeing him as somebody who's gone from being useful to not Oh, useful. he's a bore, Joe. <laughs> and, and a bore. I feel like we should respect the rest of Scotland and stop talking about him. Fair enough. Let's talk about something else. By the time Patterson was out, the five ships that would be transporting the first colonists and all the essentials and trading goods that they would need had already been bought and were on their way to the Firth of Forth (laughs) near Edinburgh. 
while the warehouses on the docks were filled with all manner of things in massive quantities. Essential things, such as 4,000 periwigs. It's a periwig. A wig. Yeah. They decided that going to a, a tropical climate and totally uncolonised area of the world, they would need 4,000 wigs. And they're made out of, like, ram fur. Yeah, they're made out of wool. Yeah. These are thick, hot wigs. <laughs> 25,000 pairs of slippers. Because, again, when you're tramping through thick jungle... You need merino wool <laughs> you slippers. You need slippers. 29 barrels full of clay tobacco pipes. So they, they sell them by the barrel. <laughs> Just a loose barrel of pipes. <laughs> and then when you get there... Crockery, yes, <laughs> broken crockery. Over one, uh, sorry, over one, <laughs> over one, <laughs> shoe. No, uh, over ten thousand combs. Because, and this is brilliant, they they decided to pack so many combs because Patterson had told them that he had also heard that the indigenous people of the area wore their hair long and love combs. And yeah, they decided that if they turned up and provided these people with combs it would be you know the perfect way to win their trust it's like oh i see you have long hair here this will help <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> the tangles <laughs> finally for generations they're all in a hair brushing circle yeah just we love you scotland <laughs> 1200 gallons of claret 1700 gallons of rum and 1,000 specially made super thin glass drinking cups to drink them from. Oh, these are terrible items, Jeff. I mean, the rum and the wine's great. They, they also did pack some things that might have proved useful when setting what up a What were the colony. combs made of? Uh, I don't know. I think they were wooden and tortoise shell, sort of inlaid combs. So there were some that were posh combs that were going to be given to the chiefs. Yeah. And there were some that were just like, yeah, it's a comb. What yeah. do you want from me? You're... you're basically a, a peasant oh i hope they're a fully bald tribe <laughs> entire body alopecia yeah for that's... generations patterson watched all the excitement stubbornly refusing to leave edinburgh as the 1200 settlers were selected from the tens of thousands of applicants to have the honor of being the first to forge the beginnings of a new scottish empire i'm conflicted with patterson mm. i don't know how i feel oh. that he can't go he was sat watching as different people came and, and signed up and applied to be uh, allowed to be one of the settlers. And I'm assuming he tried a few times wearing different moustaches and disguises. So, <laughs> my name's William Batterson. Um, I'd like to be a settler. Is it possible? I'm very good. I have a history of setting up companies. But he can't change his personality. <laughs> no, so, no, you're right. So every time he interviews... He's, they're always put off because he's that it's that wide-eyed unblinking <laughs> stir again <laughs> william we know it's you yes yes it's me <laughs> they don't know it's him but they're still <laughs> put off by that's him. the only question you have to ask hundred times is that you william yes yes it's me i would like to go on the trip sir we've told you no william okay sir thank you sir and then like six people walk through and then there's another william we know it's you again yes sir it's me the same wig but just positioned differently <laughs> Well, it was definitely a difficult time for him. He was left hoping, praying for some miracle to come and change the director's minds, to convince them of his worth at the last minute. 
<gasps> they don't know where it is. They do. Yeah. But in July of 1698, less than two weeks before the ships of the Scottish Company were due to depart, Patterson's miracle arrived. The company had realised that their venture was not without risk. And so naturally, they decided they would need at least a couple of priests. And a fall guy. Uh, on board to guard against divine retribution. Oh, already. The, the thing I didn't mention is when they were selecting people, there was a lot of, um, you were selected because you knew one of the directors of the company or because somebody owed you a favour. They did not pick the people to go on this trip who were best suited. They picked the people who had paid the most, the people who had family connections. And even before they set off, there was loads of infighting between the different ship's captains because they all felt that they should be in overall command. All of the uh, directors who were going to be sort of running the new um, settlement were already arguing about who was most important. You know, it was not harmonious even before they set off. But they decided they definitely needed to add a priest into the mix, just in case God was angry with them for some reason. Right. Mm. They'd asked for a particularly awesome reverend called Thomas James to accompany them, but he had initially declined. In early July, they had asked Reverend James again, and this time he did agree to go on the voyage. With one condition. Indeed, with one condition. Can you guess what that condition was? 50% of the combs. <laughs> would be brilliant. That William Patterson and his wife... He's married. Yeah. That's the first mention of that. <laughs> and it's him in a wig. His marriage is, is such a non-entity in this story. The person who wrote the book that children? I used as the main source... No, thank God. No. The person he, uh, who wrote the book that I used as the main source couldn't even find out the name of his wife. It was just his wife. <laughs> also, I have a wife. What? You've never mentioned this. Yes. It's private, isn't it? I wouldn't, <laughs> why would I talk about my private life? Jesus. We're never going to talk about it again, are we? Uh, we, we? We will mention her twice more. In total. When she gets sick and the overall death. <laughs> Is it that? Possibly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so basically his terms were, I will come and protect you from the wrath of God, but you have to take this boring man and his wife. The directors were horrified. Why, what, what's his reason for that? Ah, well, I'm going to tell you. James stated his belief that Patterson was, <clears throat> and I quote, The prof- funniest man I've ever spoken to. No, no he's, even he's not. He's got the same affliction. Now he said he was a propagator of virtue and a discourager of vice, and he would be an exemplary to others. So basically, like everybody else you've picked for this voyage appears to be a drunken moron with more money than sense. This guy actually knows what he's talking about. This guy is likely to stay sober enough to enact plans. You need him. And I wouldn't feel comfortable coming with you unless that man was there helping to make the decisions. Is he a God-fearing man, William? Uh, yes, of course he is. Yeah. Yes, he's, he goes to church every Sunday. And sometimes in between these. Like I say, the directors were horrified by these terms of like, anything else? Anything. I will give you my arm. Just please. Don't make us take him. And now they're all fighting who shippy goes on. Yeah, oh yeah. He ended up on one called the Unicorn. Because <laughs> the, the captain of the Unicorn was the he last to person stay on to the touch point. his nose. <laughs> they put him on the horn. They just screwed the him on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was that mermaid. What's that figure on the front of the ships? You know, it's like the, 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 
it's always like a some busty the woman. The figurehead. Is that the figurehead? Yeah, yeah that, he's just the figurehead. When the directors were sort of umming and ahhing, mm. Reverend James mm. probably pointed out mm. that they had actually agreed to take a military officer called Thomas Drummond, who had actively killed an unarmed child during the Glencoe massacre, against which accidentally being scammed by an Englishman called Smith seemed like a pretty minor offence. It's like... You, you can't question this guy's character when you're taking a child murderer and giving him a position of power. You're making him an officer. He did start it. <laughs> what, the child? Yeah. No, the, 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 they were literally unarmed. I think they were... Um... No, they had no arms. <laughs> no, I think the Glencoe Massacre, if I remember it rightly, um, it was they basically stormed into a church and killed almost all the male members of one of the clans to prove a point. So it wasn't even like they met them in battle and beat them resoundly. Resoundingly, they just stormed a church and murdered kids. It's Kill Bill like, style. Yeah, and they're like, "That's officer material right there. Come with us. Come with us to the isthmus of Derry." And I'm sure we're not going to regret taking somebody who does not blanch at the idea of stabbing a child in the back. After two weeks of trying to convince the Rev to agree to literally any other terms, the directors relented, and so. Early in the morning. Do you think the Rev just give terms that they, he thought they'd never accept? So well, he didn't have he to didn't go. go. He didn't well, want to go. He'd already it. given the, the answer he didn't want to go and they've pressured him. Exactly. And he's like, well, well, I can just give him terms that they'll, yeah, they'll never go. agree to. And they went, oh, okay. He's like, oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah, I guess I'm going on a voyage. <laughs> oh, I'll just go and pack my bag. My seafaring gear. For this voyage, I'm going Slippers? on. Slippers? Check. <laughs> Thick wig? Check. Check, check. <laughs> A dozen clay pipes. Yes. Ultra-absorbent <laughs> cloak. Oh, dear. So, yeah, like I say, early in the morning of July 19th, 1698, the first fleet of ships set sail to establish a Scottish colony on Darien, with William Patterson and his wife in a nice little cabin aboard the Unicorn. So they gave him a cabin. William had gone from being a founder and director of the company with £3,000 of shares and a vote in all matters to just a basic settler, only entitled to a small plot of 50 acres to farm and a promise of space to build a house in the new town after a period of three years, the same as every other settler. Shit, and he could have got that if he just accepted his dad's farm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's basically just doing what he was going to do anyway, <laughs> just on the other side of the world. You brought it back. Look at that. Look yeah. at you bringing it all full circle. This lonely status is possibly why, when Patterson approached the captains to insist that there should be a final inspection of the stores so as that any shortfalls could be addressed before the fleet set sail, he was ignored and told in no uncertain terms to mind his own business. This decision was one of the many that would later turn out to have been the wrong ones. To be continued. Yes, because we will have to discuss... Those other bad decisions and more. In three months' time. <laughs> Next time, when we rejoin Patterson and the other settlers for the journey and settling of Darien. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. 
You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.